It's Tuesday, April 25th at 2.38 p.m. here on the East Coast. Welcome to another edition of the TDN Writers Room Podcast. My name is Bill Finley. I'm a correspondent for the TDN. I also co-host the Down the Stretch Show every Saturday with Dave Johnson on Sirius XM Radio. I'm Randy Moss with uh, NBC Sports. Uh, just as last week, sur- <laughs> surrounded by reams of paperwork as we're getting ready for not only the Kentucky Derby and Kentucky Oaks, but... You know, a dozen undercard races on Friday and Saturday, which are going to be uh, sensational in their own right, some of them. Zoe Cavan with First Racing, Santa Anita and XBTV. I'm currently down here at the OBS sales at Niall Brennan's farm, or should we call it the kennel, because there will be eight dogs running around here. So if you hear some barking, and <laughs> it's all quiet right now, but I think there's just one here. This is Richard, come here. We got, we got Rachel here. Wait, this is Rachel Alexander. I'm not sure you can see her very well. So Rachel's here, and uh, she's actually Marat Farrell's dog. Hi, Rachel. And she's very excited to be here. Well, hi, Rachel, and welcome to the show. Well, guys, it is the Tuesday. Uh, so what do we have? Uh, do my, my math. Uh, 12 days to the Kentucky Derby. Is that right? Oh, my goodness. I can't believe I can't figure that out. But anyways, uh, it's a quiet time. Horses are working. People are, are getting the last, um, you know, uh, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, etc. Um, not a lot of news, but let's catch up on some of the things that are going on. And remember, this is on Tuesday, the time you see this and it's out uh, for viewing. Some of these stories may have changed. But um, there is one defection, and Chad Brown uh, has done it again. Uh, he has blazing sevens, is, has the points to run in the Kentucky Derby. And just as he did with early voting and cloud computing, he said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to point for the Preakness. And it worked great with early voting and cloud computing. They both won. So he's uh, won the Preakness. So he's one trainer who doesn't necessarily have that derby fever. I've got the points. I'm going to run. I have to do that. Um, that means that Jace's road gets into the race. Uh, Randy, were you surprised that um, Blazing Sevens came out? Not really, just for the reasons you pointed out. I mean, uh, you know, they've had success uh, going the alternate route. Blazing Sevens was going to be 40 to 1. So really what we're doing here, we're just trading one forty to 1 shot for the other. Jace's road gets in. Blazing Sevens won't run. Where it might have an impact, some impact possibly, is Jace's Road has a little more early speed than Blazing Sevens does. Uh, when he won uh, the gun runner earlier in the year at the fairgrounds, he won it in wire-to-wire fashion. He's not really what you would call a speed ball, but he does have tactical speed, so that might introduce uh, just a touch more early pace uh, than you would have had with Blazing Sevens. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to make much difference whatsoever. We're going to have a full field, and hopefully that's going to be the only defection because half the battle of anything derby-related is getting to the derby, and we all know the days leading up to it, horses still have to have their final works, get over the hurdles. The weather changes in Kentucky. Horses can cough. They can get a temperature. They can get a bruised foot. Anything can happen. A lot of them will be changing surfaces and going to Churchill Downs. 
We all know it usually likes to rain on Derby Week, if not on Derby Day. So many things can happen. The battle now for these trainers and owners whose dream it is to even just run in the Derby is to get there in 12 days' time. couple of news and notes among the jockeys. Uh, it was reported last week that Javier Castellano is going to ride Ray's Kane, And all of a sudden, lo and behold, it broke yesterday that, in fact, he's going to ride Mage. I, I totally get that. Mage will be much lower and the odds than raise Kane. So uh, with that change, uh, again, this this could change rapidly. We still have two uh, horses that do not have jockeys. Raise Kane. I checked with Ben Colebrook today uh, on Tuesday. He does not have a jockey yet. And the odd one to me is Kings Barnes. Todd Pletcher has not named a jockey. And I, you know, not to second guess Todd Pletcher, but I think there's an obvious choice here. Jose Ortiz is available. Why wouldn't you go there? with him, an East Coast guy that, that Pletcher is familiar with. Unless Todd maybe thinks someone's coming out and he's going to pick up that jockey at the last minute. But uh, a little late in the game to still have two uh, jockeys uh, assignments uh, up in the air. Yeah, and you know, you know what I think about that. If you've watched any of our NBC shows and the banter between me and Jerry Bailey, I think that matters zero when you come <laughs> into the Kentucky Derby. Look, the, the difference between the top-level riders in America – is so small and it can change from race to race based on circumstance. And there's no way to, know, you know, I, it, I don't think it's going to make any difference at all. Uh, whatever top level rider rides Kings Barnes or, uh, you know, or race Kane. And I was texting with Ben Colbrook this morning. And I think he had the right idea. Um, you know, their first choice, uh, Joel Rosario rode the horse in the bluegrass, right? And Rosario is now committed to disarm. Jose Lescano rode him in his Gotham win. Jose Lascano's injured. He was hurt on Wood Memorial Day. That would have been their first choice now. So I asked him, well, so what are you going to do now? And Colbert said, just going to wait it out. So there'll be plenty of jockeys sitting in the jocks room with them out. And his exact quote was, I would be more worried if they had only 19 riders. <laughs> <laughs> I love that attitude. So uh, I, I don't think you're going to get, uh, judging from that comment, you may not get a jockey resolution on Ray's Kane uh, in the next 24, 48 hours. All right, gang. Um, I know it's early, but let's let's do it. I'm going to pin you down. You have the right to change your mind. You can change. I'm going to change my mind probably five or six times. Uh, my pick on uh, the Derby on a Wednesday changes to a Thursday to changes to a Friday. But I want to say at this point in time, who is your pick and who is the horse among the top contenders? Don't give me a 50 to one shot that, that you're not really that high on. You don't think is going to run well. Um, my pick is Tappet Trice. I've done a complete 180 on him after his Tampa Bay Derby, which I didn't like. I love this bluegrass. I always look for a horse coming into the Kentucky Derby who's heading in the right direction and is improving. And I think that he uh, fits that bill uh, perfectly. My horse I don't like will be from the same stable, and that's Kings Barnes. Uh, he stole the Louisiana Derby. Fractions of 49.60, 114.69, got loose under Flavian Pratt, a gifted horse, but he's not getting that trip in the Kentucky Derby. And based off a race where he had everything go his own way, um, I'll look to uh, uh, eliminate him from my bets on Derby Day. Okay, I'm going to pin you down, Randy. What do you like? <laughs> With the same caveats that you just put, that you just gave out, you know, what's going to happen between now and then. I, I don't want to get too, I don't want to OD on the importance of post position because I think right. that tends to be overrated, right? I mean, after all, three of the last four Kentucky Derby winners were saddle tile numbers 2018 and 21. 
but right now, to me, I'm trying not to overthink this. Based on what we saw in the Santa Anita Derby, I think the horse to beat is the Japanese horse, uh, Derma Sotogake. I know I'm, you know, you got the travel to be concerned about, but look, you can take the top five, six horses in the Derby or more, and you can pick at every one of them. You can find legitimate reasons to like them and legitimate reasons not to like them. You've got to be extremely critical. You got to look at these things with the handicapper's eye. Uh, and Derma Sotogake is one of those types. I can find reasons not to like him, but he ran the fastest prep race. There's not a ton of early speed in this Kentucky Derby, at least not on paper the way it looks right now. Uh, I'm concerned about some things, but I think he may be the fastest horse in the race going in. Oh, don't I like? Well, uh, I would take a stand against Tappet Trice. I, 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 I think he is arguably the most talented horse in the race, uh, but I am concerned with his lack of uh, acceleration, his gears mid-race. And if he gets caught in traffic in a 20-horse field, I think that might not work to his advantage, given the fact that he's not the type of horse that's handy, that can stop and go and hit holes when they develop. I've, I've got concerns about kickback with him after what we saw in the bluegrass. And to keep him from having to stop and go, uh, I think he's going to be six or seven wide. And I think even if he's the best horse, that might be difficult uh, for Tappet tries to pull off. So that's why I'm taking a stand against him. But Bill will probably be right, and I'll probably be right. All right, Randy, $1 side bet, as you do with Jerry Bailey, horse okay. for horse. You can owe me a dollar after the Kentucky Derby. How about that? We got that? it. Okay. Yes. Um, and by the way, with uh, Jace's Road getting in, that's four starters that Brad Cox has in the field, including verifying who Zoe just talked about. Okay, so let's segue uh, to another subject. And just today, the uh, winners of the uh, the horse, the horses, riders, uh, trainers, etc., cetera, uh, the nominees for the, the um, Hall of Fame are in, the, the people that are going to be inducted. And this was as strong a class as oh. I can remember in a long time. Um, Corey Nakatani gets in, Arrogate, California Chrome, Songbird. And then um, those were the four that got in from the uh, traditional voting. And then uh, some others got in through various committees, historical committees. The big name there was uh, Fernando Toro got in. Um, I came fairly close on my ballot. I uh, voted for Arrogate, California Chrome, and Songbird. I did not vote for Corey Nakatani, though I'm not going to tell you he doesn't deserve it. He has 10 Breeders' Cup wins. Um, I'm a little surprised he got in because he seems to be on the ballot uh, years, going back maybe 10 years or so. I don't know uh, specifically, so I don't know what changed this time. Um, the I have been beating the drum for John Sadler to get into the Hall of Fame, and I don't know why nobody's listening to me. I think that he was a Hall of Famer before uh, he had the great year last year um, uh, and, 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 you know, did so many remarkable things. Um, I, I don't get it. I, I don't see that. I think maybe it's because he has generally has no presence with the Kentucky Derby Triple Crown horses. And that's the sexiest category that uh, everybody gravitates towards. So I was surprised by that. But congratulations to the crew and especially those three horses, Arrogate, California, Chrome and Songbird. That is a mighty, mighty group that gets into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I think we all three have votes for the Hall of Fame. I, it, you know, I tend to be kind of hardcore about who gets in the Hall of Fame and who doesn't. I'm probably more discriminating than I should be because I don't want it to be the Hall of Very Good. I want it to be the Hall of Fame. 
Uh, I had all kinds of trouble this year. Oh my gosh! I mean, you talk about guys that that and horses that were deserving. Um, apart from irrigating California Chrome, it Kona Gold. I mean, my gosh, what does a horse have to do to be in the Hall of Fame? I know he's a sprinter, but you look at his body of work lifetime, and it's just unreal. Lady Eli, Blind Luck, Rags to Riches, Hiver to Grace, Game on Dude, the trainers, none of whom made it in, uh, Christophe Clement, Graham Motion, Doug O'Neill, Sadler, John Sheriffs of Zenyatta fame. I mean, my gosh, I, I think what helped Corey Nakatani, and I'm not going to sit here and say he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame, he was the only jockey that was on the ballot. And you don't, you're not required to pick a jockey and a trainer and a horse. But I think those people who are inclined to want to vote for a jockey had one choice. Whereas you had five choices among trainers and nine choices among horses. And I think those kind of maybe uh, some of the votes got split up in the other categories. But congratulations to those that made it. Um, I thought it's really cool to get both Arrogate and California Chrome in the Hall of Fame in the same year. Yeah, and Sadler's work with Flightline this year was tremendous, even oh. though he only had the three starts. Um, maybe he'll get in next year. I think Flightline uh, is a shoo-in to get into the Hall of Fame. So let's see if uh, who goes in first, John Sadler or Flightline. Well, first of all, you'll be seeing a little less of Zoe Cadman on this week's TVN Writers Room podcast than you normally would. There's been some technical problems. We're trying to put it together. She'll appear later on in the show, and we'll have it straightened out for next week. And we'll welcome Zoe Cadman back in full. I want to remind you that the April Selected Horses of Race and Age sale is this Sunday, April 30th at 4 p.m. at Camelot. Take part in the sales event to kick off Kentucky Derby Week in the Bluegrass. View the catalog at catalog.camelot.com. If this place could talk, it would roar. It would say, this is racing. This beating heart in the heart of horse country. Steady and strong beneath the roar. Reminding us why. For the love of the horse. For generations to come. The best two-year-old by legendary sire, Quality Road. Get back, a million five. Very, very impressive debut. Cantering home could not have been more impressive. Coast to coast in the American Pharaoh. He's the real deal. Undefeated and unchallenged at two. He's just too good. He wins the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. Corniche. Corniche, the newest champion to Coolmore, America. The TDN Writers Room is brought to you by Coolmore. Practical Joke kept his name in the news this week when his party favor, a $520,000 yearly purchase for Windstar Farm and Sienna Farm, got her career off to a perfect start on Friday in a Gulfstream Park maiden special weight, winning the six-for-long event by six and one-quarter lengths. Practical Joke is now the sire of 46 winners in 2023, including five stakes winners and eight stakes performers. Group is led by grade one winner and Kentucky Derby hopeful, Practical well, there's some troubling news at Laurel this week, and I think people that are watching the podcast now know all about it. But just to rehash things, uh, according to the Horsemen's Group, five horses have broken down and had to be euthanized this month at Laurel, including two uh, last Thursday on the same day. Um, they have not raced since then. And the track issues at Laurel have been a kind of an off-again, on-again, off-again issue for, for a couple of years now. Um, it's an ugly story. It's the last thing that racing needs. 
Um, but uh, I, I, the, today, um, there was a racing commission meeting, today being Tuesday, and I wanted to read a quote from Michael Algeo. I hope I'm um, pronouncing that right. He's the chairman of the Maryland Racing Commission. And I thought he summed this up perfectly. He said, equine safety and welfare is the single most important thing at the track. The commission isn't making any judgments as to who is at fault. We cannot afford to get this wrong. We have to get it right. And absolutely, we have to get it right because already it's starting to turn into a little bit of what happened at Santa Anita in 2019 with all the problems there. Mainstream media is following this. The TV stations are, are talking about it. The Baltimore Sun is writing about it. This was particularly troubling. Uh, WMAR Television Channel 2 in, um, in Baltimore had a poll online, and the question was, should Maryland ban horse racing? 76% of the people said yes. So this is something that needs to be fixed. Um, I have confidence in the Stornet Group, first racing to get it done right. And I think we're going to weather the storm here. But uh, right now, Randy, this is a troubling story. Oh, yeah. You know, when Santa Anita had that problem a few years ago, you were hearing similar outcries. You know, I, I think there were people at racetracks around the country elsewhere that just kind of thought, well, that's a Santa Anita problem. That's their problem. It's everyone's problem, everyone in horse racing. And I think this just points that out. No racetrack is immune from situations like that, uh, no matter whether in a, you know, they're in a big metropolis or whether they're in a smaller town, uh, you can still get this sort of bad publicity. Um, it's so complicated, racetrack maintenance. It really is. You know, I've been involved in it once upon a time uh, way back in the day. And I mean, you've got dirt racing surfaces primarily. It's so hard to get them right. They've got to have enough cushion, but then they have to have bounce. You have to, you want some clay, but not too much clay. You want sand, but you don't want coarse sand. You, you know, you got to have the right amount of moisture. You don't want it too dry. All these different variables. And then, of course, there's the horse element. How sound are the horses? How thorough is the part of veterinary examinations and, and, you know, the, how are the trainers handling that? Uh, are they maybe pushing horses a little too much. So there's a lot of elements involved there, and hopefully Laurel can get it right because it's a mixture that if if it's not in the right proportions and if it's not done properly, then as we've seen, very bad things can happen. Yeah, and, and at the outset of this, the horsemen and, and management, the Maryland Jockey Club, um, they were really at an impasse. And the horsemen have asked that uh, the Maryland Jockey Club Stronach Group allow John Passero in to inspect the track. He was the former track superintendent there uh, back before, uh, back when the DeFrancis, Frank and then Joe DeFrancis on the track. And uh, today they, they agreed to let him do that. He is going to, um, they say they're not going to go forward with racing there until Pacero goes over the track and gives it thumbs up and says that it, it, it's okay to race over. One other thing that, that I'd like to say about this, and, and I understand there's, there's a lot of anger and, you know, that's understandable. A lot of finger pointing, but um, I think people have been a little bit unfair to the Stronach group. Um, you know, said, you know, th things you see on Twitter and things that normally you shouldn't pay any attention to, but have kind of cast them as uncaring or are kind of botching this up. This is the same company that took the Santa Anita situation and did a 180 degree reversal. They got how important it was and they took what was the most dangerous track in the country. And lo and behold, these years later, I've turned it into what might be the safest track in the country. They care. 
They know what they're doing. Had there been some missteps along the way, perhaps, um, you know, the, the horsemen say Stronach are, are trying to pin this on the horsemen. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I don't think it's fair to say that, that, that Stronach and, and First Racing uh, are the villains here. Um, they, again, have a history of being able to deal with these problems. And again, you know, they understand perhaps better than any entity in racing after what they went through at Santa Anita, how important it is not to have an online poll on a TV station of 76% of the people saying horse racing should be banned. Another big story that broke this week was broken by Dave Grenning in the Daily Racing Forum. Jimmy Jerkins, son of Hall of Fame trainer Alan Jerkins, who in his own right has had a terrific career. Matter of fact, people that follow New York racing considered him for years to be one of the very best trainers out there. A horseman's horseman, learned from his dad. You know, his father was a genius, winning grade one races left and right. But got so bad for him that he won all of four races last year. He's down to about 10 horses in his barn and said, as you would imagine, that not only am I not making any money, I'm actually losing money doing this, training horses, and this is not sustainable. Uh, he got a job with a, a Saudi prince. He's going to go over next month to train horses in Saudi Arabia. Um, good for him. I hope that this turns out to be a, a something that, that saves his career. But to me, the story is, how is it that a guy that is this talented and this good a trainer, and, and believe me, he is really good, could be in this position in the first place? And you know, again, there's a lot of reasons why. And he admitted that he, he's a bad when it comes to self-promoting. He didn't go to the sales. He didn't wine and dine rich owners, that sort of thing. So it's sort of my fault a little bit um, because I wasn't doing the things that I needed to do. Uh, and I just thought the owners would come to me. But uh, I also think it has a lot to do with the super trainers. Um, you know, everybody wants the same guys. And, you know, you go to the sales and you pay a million dollars for a horse. You're going to give them to Bob Baffert. You're going to give them to Bob, uh, Brad Cox. You're going to give them to Todd Fletcher. And even a Jimmy Jerkins, who's a terrific trainer, falls through the cracks. It, it, it's, there's no easy solutions to that, but that shouldn't be. He's, he's too good to have ever been put in this position. It, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It, it's kind of puzzling how... In a profession in which knowledge and experience is everything, it somehow doesn't seem to be valued as much when a trainer gets older. Wayne Lucas is what eighty-seven years old. He says he's still learning about things, you know, as his career progresses. Uh, you know, Jimmy Jerkins is like anybody who's been around him and has been around his his father. He's a clone. He's an absolute clone of his father. And and the way he put it is. His father and him were always under the impression that you didn't need to toot your own horn. You didn't need social media. What you needed to do was take care of the horses and their performance on the racetrack would speak for you. But unfortunately, that's not what the situation is right now in 2023, as you guys pointed out. I think another element to this is that so many owners now are looking for Kentucky Derby horses. And that's really their primary, sometimes sole focus. And Alan Jerkins wasn't that way. And Jimmy Jerkins wasn't that, isn't that way. They're not going to rush a horse, a young horse, into the Triple Crown uh, if they think the horse would benefit from more time and from a slower approach. And I think that also might be uh, just a little bit out of place uh, with the times right now. 
The TDN is brought to you by the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association, which means our weekly update of the Pennsylvania bred Angel of Empire, one of the top choices for the Kentucky Derby after his win in the Arkansas Derby this past Friday. He worked six furlongs in 113.40. He was in company with the newest Kentucky Derby starter, at least the horse that just got in, Jace's Road. They're both owned by the All Boss Stable, trained by Brad Cox. That is, in the photo, that is Angel of Empire on the outside. He comes into the Derby third on the point standings and with earnings of just over $1 million. Again, Angel of Empire, bred and raised in Pennsylvania by the Forgotten Land Investment and Black Diamond Equine. The PA Horse Breeders Association presents the Pennsylvania Stallion Series. Six races for PA Sire, PA bred two-year-olds at parks. Two $100,000 contests at five and a half furlongs. On August 21st, PA Day at the Races. September 23rd, PA Derby Day has two races at six and a half furlongs, both with a $150,000 purse. And in December, two races going long, each worth $200,000. For more, go to pabred.com. The Fastest Horse of the Week is brought to you by the Fast Stallions of Windstar Farms, such as the Stallion, whose progeny has been breaking watches at the upcoming OBS Spring Sale. We will explain, but first, this week, we're going to talk about Proxy, who just ran a 103 buyer speed figure at the tops of the week in his dramatic Oakland handicap victory that we will recap shortly. That was just shy of Proxy's career best buyer, the 104 that he earned last July in the Stephen Foster at Churchill Downs for finishing third in that race behind Olympiad and American Revolution. This summer, Stephen Foster, by the way, has been penciled in as the likely next start for Proxy and his new cheek pieces. The 2023 Foster is scheduled to be run Saturday, July the 1st. Now, Windstar's veteran stallion Spitestown is the sire of two fillies scheduled to be sold this week at the OBS Spring Sale, where they've been making headlines Hip number 10-12 worked a furlong in nine and three-fifth seconds, tied for the fastest time of the sale. She's out of the mare Spooky Woods and is consigned by the Scanlon Training and Sales. And hip number 6-1-8 blazed a quarter in 20 and one-fifth seconds, the fastest quarter recorded at the sale. She's being sold by All Dreams Equine and is out of the mare Last Dance. Last Dance is a half-sister to Spitester, so Spikes Down Blood has already worked well with that female family. Spikes Town is sired 24 grade one winners, plus the ultra fast Nashville, who is also standing stud at Windstar. The Green Group specializes in the thoroughbred industry. They have over 500 clients in the horse business. They're accounting and tax consulting advisory firm that has proven strategies to save you taxes. And you can learn more at www.greenco.com. And welcome in now this week's Green Group Yes, Yes, Yes of the Week. Two for the price of one today on the Thoroughbred Daily News Writers Room podcast. We have Leslie and Pierre Amistoy, the co-owners of Practical Move, the Santa Anita Derby winner, who's going to be one of the favorites in the Kentucky Derby coming up. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. My first question about this horse is you buy him at the sales and you got a choice of dozens of different trainers. Everybody gravitates, it seems, these days towards the same old, same old. Todd Pletcher, Steve Asmussen, Bob Baffert, of course. Why'd you guys pick Tim Yakteen, who obviously a good choice because he's done a great job? So um, we had talked to Tim the year before uh, about taking an into mischief cult that we had um, to Santa Anita. And I have some friends that had raced out there before. Uh, one of my old 
racing partners, Mike Abraham knew Tim. And then another friend of mine, Jaime Gomez from Los Alamitos knew Tim. So they both uh, asked us, or I asked them, I said, I want to go to a nice barn, but I don't want to be with three or 400 horses. I want something a little more a care, a little more on hands trainer. They both recommended Tim. We called him, we talked to him. He was, he's been polite and nice in every conversation we have with him. So unfortunately the end of mischief cold didn't make it. We worked him a couple of times and he got hurt. So we didn't get to go. So we kind of lost track of Tim for a year. And then last year I called him back and said, Tim, I'm going to go get you a couple of horses. So we went out to Florida and we bought a uh, practical move and blessed touch. We bought him two, two horses um, and a horse named Neiman uh, money's called we bought. So we sent all three out to Tim and, we didn't meet him till the Del Mar meet when Practical Move was running his first race. It was the first time we got to meet him, and he was just as nice as could be. And we could see the operation in the barn. And, you know, Leslie trained for 10 or 15 years. So we knew what we wanted, and Tim was what we wanted. He had a great setup and a good operation. Well, tell us the story about the actual purchase of Practical Move, the bidding, the budget, how all that went down. It was, it was a, it's a good little story. We, uh, <laughs> We went to Florida. My partner on the horse, uh, Roger Beasley, also was a partner on Practical Move. Well, he and I have some nice quarter horses together. And uh, he just called me like in February last year and said, Pierre, let's go get a couple of good thoroughbreds. I mean, you can pick them. You, let's go get something. I said, all right. And so Leslie looked it up, said, Pierre, uh, uh, OBS April's coming up. So she made us reservations. We bolted out there and we stayed a week and we saw hundreds of horses. Well, the very first day we got there, we started looking at horses. We found Practical Move. And Leslie really picked on him right away. So we went through the whole process. You know, we watched, we did his x-rays, we did the scope, we did the confirmation approvals, we did everything. And uh, we just liked him. And we were looking through many, many horses. We kept coming back. We did, Every day we'd come back to that stall and make sure he didn't have any bad habits. You know, he wasn't a cribber or, or a walker. He was mean or he was ugly. He didn't, everything was perfect. He was kind, he was calm, he was never turned a hair. He was just professional. He was From, first on our list. Then. He was first on our list. Yeah. Then when they worked, when we saw him work, we were like, whoa, look at this. Big 16 and a half, 17 hand horse working in 10-1. And he looked like he was galloping. Mm -hmm. But he caught that time that fast. Said, this, this is a good one. This is a good colt. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we went in after the work, checked him again, make sure his legs were good. He fit every box we checked we wanted. He had the scope and the size, the foot. Every, he had everything. The only concern we had was his April 30th birthday. You know, you like to have him a little early, you think, right? Well, we said, that's not enough. He's big enough. He's mature enough. The birthday, we said, we're, we're going to go for it. So he was in first day. So, you know, we're getting nervous. He's our first pick of the whole set. We, that's the horse we want. So we walk up to the ring. And Leslie's getting nervous. She's trying to hang on to me. And she's getting nervous. <laughs> I'm getting nervous because we want him. And so he gets up there and. Our budget was about 175000 I said, we'll, we'll get him. I said, Practical Joke isn't the bomb yet. You know, he's got some nice horses. He had one grade one winner. Most of his runners were in Chile. I said, we'll, we'll get this horse. And she had, he had, he had 175000 in 15 seconds. Yeah. Oh, my God. I said, he's going to. And so Leslie goes, oh, we're not going to get him. So she walks off. And she goes back to the table. And she's upset, you know. So I hung around. And I hung around. And I bid again. And then another guy bids. And I bid again. And I look across the ring, and I see the guy that's bidding against me. I see him. And he's starting to fret. He's, he's, he's moving his book. He's moving his hat. He's, he's wandering up. <laughs> and he got to 215. And I said, I'm going to just, I'm going to go it. I just looked up and told the spotter, 230. 
And he goes, 230, and he walked off. <laughs> he walked away, and I got him. For 230000 we got him. So he was over our budget, but what the hell? We he was our it. number one pick, which we never get when we go to sales. Yeah. Know? We always pick the number one, but we never can buy him. So, Leslie, what did you think when Pierre walked back to the table and told you you had yeah. the horse? Well, he had the ticket hidden in the book. <laughs> and I was like, when he got back, I was like, we should have got more people together. We should have done something. We should try to get him, you know. And, uh, and he just opened his book and dropped it on the table. <laughs> and I said, oh, you got him. We were, like, so happy. We had no buyer's remorse ever with him. We loved him from the start. She, so she says, Pierre, was that the right move? Yeah. And we think we look at each other and she goes, that's his name. Practical move. Yeah. She named him right there when we bought him. <laughs> was, was that the right move? I said, I don't know, but that's his name. It's a practical move, so, you know. So that's how that went down that day. That's an amazing story. You're a competitive bunch. Um, but it's not just like you were two novice horse people coming to OBS to look no. at horses to buy. Tell us a little bit about no. training career. You trained a ton of winners, Leslie. And I heard a little birdie say maybe that, yeah, you were a jocks agent. Yes, I trained for about 10 or 12 years at Santa Fe and, and Turf Paradise and, you know, in this area around here. And uh, then when I decided to have our family, I stopped training. But we met, I, we met at the racetrack in Turf Paradise. We were actually born and raised in the same neighborhood and didn't know each other. But when we wow. met at Turf Paradise, we were coming home for Christmas, and there we were in the same plane. We're like, are you from there? We're like, we were from the same neighborhood. Yeah. And that was, we went on from there, you know. And so it was, that's how we met, was he was a, a jockey agent at, uh, first at Santa Fe Downs, but I didn't know him. I had just started training then. I was one of the first women trainers in the nation. I was only 20 years old when I started. And it was like wow. in 79. So I trained most in the 80s, and I met him there, and he was a jock agent uh, to some friends of his that he went on to the track with, and that's kind of how we met, but we got to know each other better in Phoenix. So when I was a jock agent, uh, my dad had a construction company, and he sold it in um, 1975, and he, he went down to Los Lunas, little South Albuquerque, bought a couple of feed stores. He grew them, and then he sold them. And then he had a few horses. So him and my brothers really liked the horses. So they built a training center down in Belen, New Mexico, and they broke a lot of colts for a lot of trainers in, in this whole region. They got to know some people from Santa Fe Downs, and in particular, a couple of jockeys. And those jockeys, and I was without work since he sold the company, so they asked me to be their agent. I said, I'll go. I said, I don't know anything about it. I don't know. They said, well, you'll learn. I didn't know what a condition book was. But I went. And fortunately for me, they were – they were good jockeys. They were well-received. Everybody liked them. And I picked up pretty quick on it, you know, and I, I started going good. Well, hell, I had, for the next 12 years, I probably had leading rider eight or nine of those years of the 12 of the twelve years. We did really good when a lot of for charities here. In New Mexico, most of our big races are for charities, two-year-old races. So we won a lot of for charities. Leslie won some for charities. You know, she's kind of modest. She won a lot of races. and She won some derbies. She had some nice horses, and she did real well. So that's how we started going back to Kentucky. She was going back to buy horses for her clients. So we started going together to go back there and buy. And we started, we just learned. We learned how to read the book. We just learned confirmation. And we just weren't through it all. And we learned. And so we pinhooked uh, for ourselves for about four or five years. And we made enough money in four or five years. And we bought a farm in Kentucky cash. 
in Paris, Kentucky called Lobo Farm. And we owned that farm for 12 years and we did great at it. We, we bought and pin hooked a lot. We raised a lot and sold a lot of good yearlings. One year in January, we topped the sale with a mare. We had a mare and fold a storm cat. Uh, we fold the, the, the colt out, bred her back to go sapper and we sold her for 2.7 million. So her name was Iris Cherry. So she was a big, big hit for us. We did good. And then right after that, uh, the economy went bad in 2078. If you all remember, the markets kind of went bad. So we sold the farm and came back to New Mexico. And then New Mexico got uh, casinos at the racetracks. So the purses got really good here. So we've been racing mainly in New Mexico and have done real well, won a lot of quarter horse races, a lot of thoroughbred races, a lot of fraturities. We've been uh, leading our many times here. Yeah. We have our own little broodmare band where we raise our New Mexico breads and they do well here. We, we uh, love our babies. So we, we were staying here. And then when Roger asked us to go to, to go find us a couple of good horses, we took off to Florida and there, look here, here you are a year later. <laughs> and we have this wonderful horse, Practical Move, who, who is just, just a dream for us. Knock on wood. And, and the filly we bought, she stakes place. Her name is Blessed Touch. She's a nice filly. Tim has her out there. So it's kind of a full circle for us, you know, uh, for the last 25 years or so. And, and look, we made it to the Derby. Unbelievable. Now, you guys have talked about um, success you had in quarter horses. I understand you were quite successful there. Uh, do you still have quarter horses? And when, where, and why did you make the transition to thoroughbreds? Well, we we, we were always thoroughbreds. <laughs> we, it was funny. We would go to Sunland Park to watch the races, at, at, and we'd run a bunch of thoroughbreds. Well, in those days, they used to run the first four or five races were quarter horse races. So we'd be sitting there watching four races. We didn't have any shot of doing any good in. I said, Leslie, we know this. Let's just go buy quarter horses. So we started buying quarter horses. And because the race meets here are all mixed meets, they're all quarter horse and thoroughbred. So we didn't want to sit out. We got in and uh, we went and we bought a, uh, we've been in the All American three times. We had a horse we bought. His name was First to Flash. We bought him in Redoso. And he, winning uh, the Redoso for charity, no, the Rainbow for charity. And he was champion two year old that year. And uh, then we stood him at stud. He had an accident and died. We got one crop. And out of that one crop, we went back to Redoso about four years later, and Leslie found First Moon Flash, a son of his. And First Moon Flash uh, had seven grade one wins. He had he had all the world records by himself at one time. He had four world records, 300, 400, 350, 400, 440. He won it twice. Mm -hmm. And he was champion racing stallion in 2009. Mm -hmm. And then we stood him for about 10 or 11 years. And he did, we just lost him year before last. But he was a champion racehorse, a champion sire. And so he was our biggest horse. But we won probably 10 or 15 for charities. Mm -hmm. You know, a bunch of big races here in New Mexico. So we were always in thoroughbreds. Yeah. We just decided to, to use both breeds because there were so many races here for quarter horses. And when I first started, I worked for one of the best quarter horse trainers here, Don Ferris. He's not there anymore, but I worked for him for a long time when I was younger and learned a lot about quarter horses. It's about caretaking anyway when it's, you know, thoroughbred or quarter horse. It's all about caretaking, right? So uh, both breeds, you know, it's it's all about confirmation and caretaking and, uh, you know, trusting your trainer and getting in the right races. You know, that's a big thing. You know, some people can't read that book. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's been a big, a long journey for us, and we we've had a lot of fun 
really helps with our marriage too. You got to imagine we have something to speak about at night, you know, instead of just look at each other. <laughs> so you know, we had our 35th wedding anniversary last month, but we've been together around 45 years. So. No, that's fantastic. So now, lo and behold, the journey takes you to Churchill Downs on the first Saturday in May, knock on wood, with the horse, the only horse in the Derby field has had back-to-back triple-digit buyer speed figures, seems to be going in the right direction, has tactical speed, has everything seemingly you would want. You guys are both knowledgeable. Uh, Pierre, you were a jockey's agent. You're probably both good handicappers. So handicap practical move in the Kentucky Derby. What do you really like about him going in? And what are you, if anything, are you still maybe just a little bit concerned about? Well, we like you said, I think he's tactical enough. He Ramon can put him, I think, where he wants him. And what we're hoping to do, and I hope we hope we can get a good enough break that we hit the first turn and we have two-thirds of them behind us. We want to be up in the first tier or right behind the first tier of horses. And this horse has a really good, really good, strong, high cruising speed. So if we can get a good spot and just cruise down that backside and set ourselves up, he's got a good turn of foot too. You know, in the Santa Ana Derby, um, we're not going to criticize Ramon, but we think he waited just a little bit too long before he turned him loose. And those other horses had momentum on us. And they were up on him before we turned for home. And they were they had momentum, and he held them off. He showed a lot of guts, I thought, that day. Never running that far and to hold off those good horses, I thought he did great. So um, if we get our trip, um, I think coming out of the turn, we're going to be close to the lead or hitting the lead, and, and then they're going to have to come get us, I think. If his horse switches leads like he's supposed to, you know, I think he'll finish strong, and and that's what we're hoping for, of course, right? But I think this horse, he's been bumped, and he's been back before in some of his early races. Didn't care. He just came and made his run. He runs second to Cave Rock. You know, he ran third to having a meltdown. He's run with good, good horses. Um, so I think we've got a good enough horse that he's smart enough and he's cool enough and he's just, he's just doesn't make any mistakes. Then I think that's what's given us our best chance to win the race is his, his class. Yeah. And you know, when we go this far, which is long ways, it's, we got to rely on Ramon, you know, he's got to make the decisions when it's time and he's got to know where he's at in the race. And he's got to remember, they're going to be coming. Those guys are going to be coming you know, so we got to try to get a jump and go get to the wire. Yeah. And the one thing about practical move is that he is cool under fire seemingly in any situation. His work before the Santa Anita Derby was terrific, surrounded by five horses that gave poor Tim Yachtin an almost heart attack as his final prep for the race. It looks like he has the mentality to come in and be cool under fire. How's your mentality? Do you have massive derby fever? I mean, how are you feeling going in? Is, this kind of, is winning a grade one thoroughbred race better than winning a grade one futurity race? And and how big is your derby fever? It's big. It's big. We're, <laughs> yeah. we're really excited. I mean, we've got a, a lot of family coming, a lot of friends coming. I was just showing up all of our boxes today, this morning, for, you know, for Churchill. So I'm excited. Uh, the words around town, Albuquerque is not, it's a city, but it's not that big. Yeah. So a lot of our friends know they're calling and they're texting. And yeah, so we're very excited. We're I mean, really we're- excited. And then the, the church has been really nice to us, you know, yeah. get call us, let us know what do you need? What do you want? We're real. They were really nice to us. We're 
appreciate that. But we're very nervous about it, and we're, you know, we're just hoping everything goes right. You know, I don't, if there's a, a way to be confident and nervous at the same time, we're confident, but we're we're, we're nervous we're at the same time. We're nervous. Yeah. We got to get the trip. We know it. We've been in a long time. We know it. You know, twenty horses. So when people go to the sales, obviously a lot of them are looking for that Kentucky Derby horse, right? And if Practical Move were by Tappet or by Curlin, he probably would have gone for a lot more than $230,000. But there were horsemen, there are horsemen who are skeptical about the sire practical joke and the mile and a quarter distance, since he was primarily a one-turn type horse. But I understand you guys are not really that concerned about the pedigree. Tell us why. Well, um, Practical Joke himself, right, was a great seven furlong mile horse. But his sire, Into Mischief, who was the leading sire in the country right now, he's 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 had some Kentucky Derby winners, right? And Practical Joke's bottom side is in distorted humor, and he's had horses go to the routed ground. But when we went to look for a horse this, uh, this that time, we were looking for a horse that had a speed sire, and we were trying to get the distance from the dam side. Mm-hmm. So, so we thought we have a good mix with a fleet Alex Mayer, the second dam to Gerald Meeting, which is a Seattle Slew horse, and then I think Lear Fan. So we had we had the distance on the bottom side we thought to carry him a ground around a ground. So we had the speed, and I think it's shown up that way with him being tactical enough that he can use that speed, but the bottom side to carry the distance. And I think that that's proven out right now. Mm-hmm. You know, can he get the mile and a quarter? We'll see next Saturday, right? But. <laughs> yeah. He's got enough pedigree, I think, uh, beyond Piratical Joke himself to hopefully catch that distance. And yeah. and maybe that's why we got him for 230. You're right. He might have brought 730 if he was a Tappet or a, mm-hmm. you know, oh, or, or one of those Because horses. he's an individual. That's the other he's thing. He's an absolute individual. He's big. Right. He's strong. He's classy. You know, he's if he'd have been a Tappet, he'd have brought big money. You know, Randy, he's. When you see the horse, mm-hmm. he doesn't look like a sprinter. He looks like a router. He's mm-hmm. he's big. He's long. His neck is long. He's stretched. He's, he's got, got a hip, long hip. He, he looks like a router, even though he, he might be bred by a speed sire. He looks like he can wrap mm-hmm. the round. Mm-hmm. And it was so funny when uh, when Tim entered him in the in the Los Alamitos for charity, we'd run him just a couple of short races, a six furlongs, a six and a half. And he ran third in a seven furlong race. Had a bad trip and still ran third in a stake. And Tim, that morning, that day we were standing in the grass. He said, we're going to find out today, boys and girls, if he can run a route of ground. Mm-hmm. And he killed him. He sat there and ran right behind American or Arabian Lion and smashed. He, he could see at the half mile pole, Ramon was just waiting, just mm-hmm. sitting there with full horse. Mm-hmm. They made that turn and he just opened up and, and beat Long him. lane, long lane there. And by so the way. <laughs> after the race, Tim said, I think he answered the question today. I think yeah. we can go around the ground. He was confident then. So I think now he's really confident in the horse where he was worried a little bit, but I think that's gone. I think yeah. he's he's confident in our horse. Well, Leslie and Pierre Amistoy, thanks so much for joining us here on the TDN Riders Room podcast. Best of luck with Practical Move in the Kentucky Derby. Thank you very much. Thank guys. you much. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. As this week's guests, plural of the week, Pierre and Leslie Amistoy will receive a free one-hour tax consultation from the Green Group. And they're still buying yearlings, so that might come in handy. Learn more at www.greenco.com. Are you paying too much in taxes? The Green Group can help. There's a reason the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisors. They save you money and share successful strategies. 
Over the past 40 years, the Green Group founder, Len Green, has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport. Like Eclipse award-winning champions, Jaywalk and Wonder Wheel. His DJ stable competes at the highest level and has received the game's most prestigious honors. Len Green's in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the thoroughbred business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. Honor Code, a multiple grade one winner from the final crop of the legendary AP Indy. Never off the board in 11 starts, he was crowned champion older horse before retiring. Now he is living up to the promise of his pedigree. With progeny like grade one winners Honor AP, Max Player, and Maracuja, and multiple six-figure yearling sales, Honor Code stands to continue his sire's legacy at Lane's End. The Lane's End Stallion of the Week. Drumroll, please. Honor Code. Honor Code, the son of AP Indy, has had two three-year-old stakes winners in the last month. Rarified Flair in the Rushaway Stakes at Turfway and Cats in the Timber in the Weber City Miss at Laurel. Honor Code stands for $20,000 this year at Lane's End Farm. Well, I hope all our viewers who are horse players will start betting on Hawthorne. Why Hawthorne? Because they have given the horse player the greatest break in horse racing today, lowering their win place and show takeout to 12%. And Zoe rode a lot of winners at Hawthorne over the years, so I know it's a track she's very fond of. But it's a track that has him having trouble finding a niche. And they wanted to do something different, so they lowered the takeout. And to me, when tracks do this, betters need to gravitate towards it to support them. And this is exactly what is happening there. And, you know, we always wonder, does lowering the takeout really work? And there's been a lot of debate about that. Um, there's never really been a definitive answer. But through the first 13 days of the meet, win, place, and show betting is up 33.72%. Good news right there. And Jim Miller, who is uh, Mr. Everything, wears a bunch of different hats at uh, Hawthorne. I talked to him, and he said also that the right now the average handle uh, is $1.6 million. This doesn't sound like a lot, but he said last year it was $1.2 million. And he thinks what is happening is the betters are coming to Hawthorne to take a look for the low takeout in the win place and show. And then they're also betting in the other pools, uh, exact as pick fours, pick threes, or whatnot. So, you know, it's good news for the horse player. I hope other tracks will pay attention to this. And, you know, I've always thought, and I've been talking about for 25 years, Horse racing's biggest problem selling itself as a gambling game is the takeout is too high, especially when compared to everything else out there like slot machines, sports betting, whatnot. It's not a good value and horse racing needs to do something about it. So um, congratulations to Hawthorne and, and Randy. Um, I hope these numbers hold up and I hope a couple other tracks will take a look at this. Oh, yeah. It's not exactly a novel idea. If you're a business that's struggling, do something that your customers will really like, like dropping the takeout. And I think this is so huge when you see how what it's done to Hawthorne, because it's very easy for racetrack owners to be skeptical, right? I mean, their bills are going up as well. Their utility costs are going up. Their maintenance costs are going up. Their payroll costs are going up. And 
in lowering the takeout, you're telling racetracks or you're asking racetracks to take less money at a time when they're having to spend more money. And I think racetrack owners also, I know that racetrack owners have been somewhat skeptical that if you have a horse player who's got a choice between track A and track B, and they know a lot about track A, but track B is lowering their takeout, eh, they're not really sure that it matters so much to a horse player that he'll shift his allegiances from one track to another. And I think what we're seeing right now at Hawthorne may be uh, a really good case study for some of these racetracks that might be on the fence. Now, we're seeing more and more now racetracks beginning to get it about takeout and starting to trim their takeout. But Hawthorne has gone one step further, and maybe this will be a trend that will continue. Lower the takeout, the betters will come. And, and good for Hawthorne because this is a particularly tough time for them because they don't have a circuit anymore. It used to be an Arlington Park Hawthorne circuit for the most part that would take the horsemen throughout the year without Arlington and without those dates. Hawthorne is left on its island to support itself. The horsemen can't stable there year round because the uh, standard bread racing comes in there and they have to get out the track changes. So Hawthorne for Chicago for Illinois racing is a standalone track. So that's hard enough in of itself. So the fact that they're lowering the takeout as well at the very crucial time that they really, really need it, I would applaud people and encourage them to go and play at Hawthorne and, and help them out. They're helping you. Give them a helping hand too. I think why the landscape is changing a little bit uh, in, in regards to takeout is because, you know, more and more and more money at every racetrack is being bet off track as opposed to being bet on track. And the simulcast arena has gotten so hyper competitive among racetracks that if you're a mid-major racetrack like Hawthorne is right now, it's a, it's, it's a tough road to go. It, it's tough to compete against the Saratogas and the Churchills and the Delmars and all those other signals that are out there. So what better way to differentiate your signal from some of the others is then being able to advertise, bet with us and we'll give you more money back. So I, I do think that we're going to see more and more of this going forward. Randy, it's interesting you brought up that point because the other changes, they're not running on Saturdays. And he said, what, a racetrack's not going to run on Saturday? So he said, on Saturday, they get buried. Everybody's paying attention to Gulfstream, to Keeneland, to Santa Anita, to Aqueduct. Who's going to pay attention to Hawthorne on a Saturday? So they switched their Saturday cards to Thursdays. Now, they are going to Saturdays a little bit later in the meet, but they, they think that's been a, a big um, uh, help as well. Um, not a lot going on on the racetrack last weekend. It's kind of that quiet time. But one huge race, the Oakland Handicap, uh, won by proxy. Uh, Randy, he talked a lot about this horse, about how he always looks like he's not going to get it done, and he's sort of going backwards. Uh, track announcer Jim Pyers even said, Proxy not responding much. <laughs> and no sooner did Jim get that out of his mouth than he did respond. But uh, he wins um, by oh, by head over last samurai, uh, a nose back to Stiletto Boy. Um, here's my take on this division. It's not very good. Everybody retired last year that mattered. And uh, there are some good, solid horses. Proxy, Art Collector, West Willpower, Last Samurai, Stiletto Boy, Defunded. They're just going to take turns beating each other throughout the year. Uh, but congratulations to Proxy. He moved up to second on the NTRA Top 10 poll. Leap Power is still first. And uh, Randy, has this guy finally figured it out? Well, 
You know, Bill, I didn't pick Proxy. I thought he'd be a fast closing second like he always is. But I know who did pick Proxy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what did you think he, about it? He was terrific. I'd actually reached out to uh, Mike's assistant, Hillary Pridham, and asked about Proxy because they'd, they'd all decided that he would like that racetrack. And he gets Joel Rosario back on him. And He's always a little bit closer with Joel, and they'd worked him in cheek pieces. Now, this is the one thing that I've yet to figure out about the DRF. And, you know, if you take blinkers on or take them off, you, you have to have it in the form. You can't do it. It has to be notated. It has to be notated in Europe as well with the cheek pieces. Cheek pieces in the U.S., you do not have to notate it. You can take them on and put them off. I think it should be notated. I write it down in my DRF formulator when I'm watching races, who's got cheek pieces, who hasn't, because that's the only way you know. Anyway, he works in cheek pieces. Hillary said it was much better. They were hoping he would be closer. Of course, he wasn't. Broke well, took himself back, got himself out of the kickback, which he hates. And it looked like all was lost. And then all of a sudden, he did come flying in the last 50 yards and got his nose down just in time for the win. So... I think maybe they made a little bit of difference in the last 50 yards. I don't know. It was a good win. It was a good race. It was a very, very good race indeed. And as far as the horse that ran second, Wayne Lucas's horse, he got into a little bit of a bump with Stiletto Boy when they turned for home because there was just enough room to lure Kristen Torres in there. He got in there and a lot of people thinking maybe he should have won. I don't think so. I think the best horse won on the day. The TDM Writers' Room is brought to you by XBTV. The XBTV workout of the week is the Kentucky Derby favorite, Forte. He had his first workout at Churchill Downs on Friday with his old pal, Bright Future, seen working here. This is exactly what I wanted to see from Forte. Got a little bit of pep in his step. It's been a lot cooler there at Churchill Downs of late. I think he's glad to get out of Florida. And if you're worried that the Florida Derby knocks him sideways, don't be. This is a good work. You can watch it only on XBTV. All the thrills. Fraction of the bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. The TDN Writers Room is brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. Joining a West Point Thoroughbreds group can literally launch you right into the winner's circle. They are currently shopping at OBS Sales. If you want to join them, go to westpointtb.com. Got some more info with the connections of Blazing Sevens announcing they will wait for the Preakness West Point-owned Jace's Road has made it into the main derby field. Among the West Point partners on Jace's Road are NFL Network Insider Ian Rappaport, Fox Sports reporter Lindsay Zaniak, and Fox Sports talk show host Joy Taylor. Jace's Road is trained by Brad Cox and owned in partnership with the Ulvar family. West Point is, of course, looking for their second derby win after taking the 2017 running with Always Dreaming. You can learn more at westpointtb.com. Well, that's a wrap for this week's show. I want to thank Randy Moss and Zoe Cameron who join us each week at this time. Our green group guests, 
plural of the week, Pierre and Leslie Amistoy. Our producer, Patty Wolf. Our associate producer, Katie Petroniak. Our editors, Anthony LaRocca, Aaliyah LaRocca, and Nathan Wilkinson. And shout out once again to our mascot, Lucy, over Randy's right shoulder. Thanks for joining us this week. Coming up next week, lots more to talk about Kentucky Derby right around the corner. See you next week.